Welcome to the Center for Ancient Christian Studies podcast. Uh, we're your hosts, Sean Wilhite and Coleman Ford. Our guest today is Dr. Heath Thomas. And Dr. Thomas is both a faculty and administrator at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary in Wake Forest, North Carolina. Uh, he is an associate professor of Old Testament and Hebrew, as well as the director for PhD studies at the seminary. Yeah, and, and Dr. Thomas's academic writing generally coalesces around Old Testament studies as well as hermeneutics, of which we'll be able to hear a little bit more about later in the interview. Uh, he's authored Until He Looks Down and Sees the Message and, the, and Meaning of the Book of Lamentations. It was published in 2009. And Poetry and Theology and Lamentations, which was published in 2013 with Phoenix, uh, Shef Sheffield Phoenix Press. Uh, he currently has three books that are forthcoming. Uh, a Habakkuk commentary in the Two Horizons series, Old Testament Minor Prophets, a theological introduction with IVP, and he is an editor alongside uh, Craig Bartholomew, a manifesto for theological interpretation with Baker Academic. Over the past number of years, he has also been involved with the Scripture and Hermeneutics Seminar at SBL and a fellow in, the, in Old Testament at the Paideia Center for Public Theology. Dr. Thomas, it's really good to be with you this morning. And it's great to be with you, and thanks so much for this kind invitation. I look forward to this conversation with you. Well, great. Now, Heath, your primary disciplines are Old Testament and hermeneutics, namely theological interpretation of Scripture. Um, now, the question is, how and why did you begin studying these fields? So, for instance, what was your personal journey? What are some works along the way, uh, maybe some key thinkers that helped you along this journey and to see the value of uh, TIS with your work? Well, that's a great question, and I appreciate it very much. One of the things that I've found over the past, oh, I don't know, 20 years or so, is the more that I dive into Christ Christian scripture, the more I realize it is theological through and through. So, of course, you know, there are ideology in Scripture, there's uh, issues of gender in Scripture, there's all sorts of history and background material, but one of the things that you can't uh, but come away with with Scripture is how theological through and through it discloses God, it discloses uh, what God has done in this world, and then how humanity fits into God's workings and God's dealings in the world. And uh, I, I think what got me on theological interpretation uh, more than anything is my literary background. You know, I did a BA in English literature. That's kind of my background. I focused in critical traditions in particular, and that was, you know, that's, that's now well over 20 years ago when I began that. And so I had this kind of literary uh, background to my work. So as I read scripture, I realized, oh my goodness, you know, this stuff is amazing literature, but it's the subject matter that captured me uh, over and over and over again. And I think probably it was my first trip to Israel in 1995 when I began reading the Gospel of Luke uh, while I was uh, on my trip. And uh, I was just absolutely captured by the fact that, yes, there's all this wonderful culture, there's wonderful history, there's wonderful geography. And I was walking in the steps of Jesus, if you will, while I was there. But I couldn't escape the subject matter of Scripture, which is God. God. And then God who created the world. And God who has disclosed himself manifestly in the Son, Jesus Christ. And so that's what got me started. I think uh, what helped me 
give flesh to those bones were some uh, basic uh, works, not least being Creation Regained by Al Walters, uh, the work of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, if you've ever read his stuff. Uh, Bonhoeffer is one of the major theological interpreters, Creation, Fall, and Temptation. Uh, I mean, there's there's a lot of these, Act and Being, but really Creation, Fall, uh, and Temptation, and the Cost of Discipleship were two major works that kind of got me on this uh this this road and then when i did my phd studies in the uk i was exposed to gordon mcconville and and gordon wenham two towering figures in evangelical uh, scholarship in in the uk and i just noticed that what they focused on more and more and more in their commentaries and in their uh articles and in their own kind of interpretation is god and what is the theology of this text so i think that those are the things that got me into theological interpretations. And I think that's probably one of the reasons why I focused on poetry and theology in the Book of Lamentations, because I was looking at how, uh, as far as my dissertation work goes, how uh, theology is presented, God is presented in the Book of Lamentations. And I found that it wasn't just through uh, kind of doctrinal formulation or something like that. It was through the presentation of poetry how the poetry activated and engaged the reader in, uh, in the book. And that was uh, unique, I think, in my literary background as well as the theological kind of focus gave rise to my reading of Lamentations and my dissertation. You know, that's great, and I think that's a good segue um, uh, into maybe talking a little bit more about uh, poetry and theology and Lamentations. And, and you've, you've elaborated on, uh, on it a little bit already. Um, maybe maybe if, if you can, just tell us a little bit more about that project, but even in particular, um, why, why did you choose uh, Umberto Eco's language in this? And so it, our, our listeners are probably somewhat familiar with um, Umberto Eco, with his semiotics. He recently had a, uh, had a new, well, it's not new, but it's new to English, the English-speaking world, his book on writing, which, is, which has been very helpful, very clear. Uh, but yeah, so this is an interesting dialogue that dialogue partner that you choose of Echo and then bringing it into Lamentations. And then in particular, he makes the distinctions between an opened and closed textuality. So maybe, maybe elaborate on that and why, and, and maybe give us a little bit of the rationale why you chose that, that route. Well, it's, it's a good question. And, you know, most people, when you hear that you have done your work in Lamentations, they ask either why or how depressing and. <laughs> Or they'll, they'll, you know, uh, you know, wonder is is Lamentations really in the Bible? And I promise it is. Uh, and you know, Lamentations is a funny little book. You know, it's only five chapters, but it's a it's a powerhouse. And uh, I think the reason why I, I wanted to work in such a depressing book like Lamentations is because uh, in my preparation for my PhD studies, I was looking for um, projects that 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 needed to be done, and I noticed uh, Lamentations, in the Hebrew at least, is extraordinary poetry. I mean, it's, it's absolutely extraordinary. It's unique. It's acrostic poetry. And so it's got all of these uh, unique features. Uh, but one of the things that I noticed uh, as I was searching around, who can help me read this book? And so as a good evangelical, I go to, to look at good evangelical scholarship. And just frankly, there was some pretty good stuff. But 
by and large, there was a, a, a huge gap in evangelical scholarship on a book like Lamentations. And I think it's probably because we like the New Testament better, or some of the major uh, Old Testament book, books like Genesis or Deuteronomy or Isaiah or the Psalter, which are all wonderful. But I was uh, captured by the fact that Lamentations is Scripture, too. It's God's Word and a word that needs the church needs to hear for today. And so that's what got me on the book of Lamentations. Um, and that was, a, that was a strange but a wonderful experience. And so, as I mentioned earlier, one of the things that I focused on is how the poetry constructs theological formulation in the book. And I noticed pretty clearly that is a unique uh, process. It's not, um, it's not something that you would find necessarily in a Pauline epistle. Uh, Pauline epistles, let's say, are, are fairly straightforward. They're very well organized, clearly articulated. And there's not loads of ambiguity. Well, contrast that, for instance, with Lamentations. Lamentations is filled with ambiguity. Uh, the way that uh, the book describes God is ambiguous. At sometimes he seems for you, at sometimes he seems against you, and it's all compacted uh, verse upon verse in one book. And so you just get the sense, gosh, how am I supposed to understand this? Well, that's why, uh, in light of the, the, the seemingly contradictory uh, theological presentation, that's what got me into uh, Echo. Umberto Echo is a wonderful theoretician and, and critical thinker uh, of literature. You mentioned semiotics, and that's right, which is the study of signs. Uh, he's really concerned with, in his theoretical work, how communication works, uh, from stop signs to Superman comics to more advanced uh, literary works like a book um, uh, such as a book like Lamentations. And what I found uh, he did is he, he was able to say, all right, some texts have a very straightforward mode of presentation. They engage the reader in a particular kind of way. They're designed to bring you through this program, this, this work, so you come to a, a singular kind of conclusion. That's more uh, a closed textuality, where the text brings the reader through to a predetermined outcome. And a good example of this would be a Superman comic or a James Bond novel. And in a Superman comic or a James Bond novel, the reader pretty much knows what's going to happen. There's going to be the superhero, there's going to be the villain, there's going to be, you know, uh, the girl somewhere in the, in, the, uh, in the story, there's going to be a complication, uh, the threat of trouble or death, but in the end, the villain will be defeated, Superman will win, and, you know, if we're talking James Bond, James Bond will get the girl. That's a closed kind of textuality. Uh, Echo contrasts this against more of an open textuality where, and I like his language here, open texts are designed to bring the reader from their moment of design and creation to bring the reader through a kind of, and I'll use his language here, a kind of ideal insomnia where the reader is facing all sorts of challenges as he or she negotiates this text, and it seems like the options that are faced, uh, that the reader faces, are almost incommensurate. They, they can't be married together. Well, that is an open text, and it's designed from the moment of its generation. So in other words, Echo would say, the author has created this text to generate these uncomfortable responses where the reader is saying, oh, I've got to choose, but there's multiple choices of how I should negotiate this text. 
And the reader is designed, uh, or the author designs the text so the reader faces these. And a book like Lamentations is one of those. So I'll give you an example. In Lamentations, are you supposed to embrace God in the sense of affirming that we are sinful people and accept his punishment? Well, yes, because the text builds up that kind of theological construction and invites that kind of response, confession and penitence. But on the other hand, a book like Lamentations also uh, asks the reader or invites the reader to engage, engage God in what we would call lament prayer, where the, the, the prayer um, comes to God, confronts God, and says, gosh, I don't know what to do with this, God. Help me. My enemies are surrounding me. Uh, you have abandoned me, and God, I need you to deliver. And that's a different kind of uh, portrayal of God because God is, in some cases in Lamentations, the one who's causing pain, and the prayer is not confession and penitence. The prayer is, God, change what you're doing or change what the en enemies are doing. So how do, you, how do you negotiate that? Well, scholarship in the past have tried to emphasize one pole or the other. What I simply did is said, you know, the poetry is what the poetry is. It's allowing both of these responses, potential responses, to stand. And that's an open textuality. So I identified Lamentations as an open text rather than a closed text. And this kind of ideal insomnia is part of the function of Lamentations. No, that's, and, that, and that's quite helpful. And, and even in, in, the, in your introduction, you, you almost lay out like a fourfold, or not fourfold, um, but you identify some four types of movements, whether it's behind the text, in the text, kind of in front of the text, and, and it somewhat speaks into this, this open and closed idea. Uh, and then you uh, uh, offer a fourth, which is in an integrated approach. Maybe elaborate why, how do, how do we identify those four elements, especially when reading maybe Lamentations, or maybe if we stand back and just kind of read Scripture at large. Because uh, in, in front of the text type of reading is, is more, more or less going down the road of reception, reception theory, uh, of which that's where patristic, the patristic voices start to ring out a little bit more in the expansion or, or the identification of what the meaning is. And so maybe, maybe if you can just uh, ex expand a little bit on those, th those, four, those four types and, and, where do you, and maybe give a little bit of where you land on that four kind of text, fourfold taxonomy right there. Well, thanks for the question. Uh, and yes, I do uh, uh, build up this kind of taxonomy to try and focus how scholarship reads the Book of Lamentations. So, if you look at uh, and and you could apply this taxonomy to uh, biblical interpretation in general. In fact, the reason I'm I, I work from this taxonomy is it's not because I created it. I I, I draw from Anthony Thistleton's work as well as a, another guy named William Tate. Both of these scholars use this taxonomy uh, to describe the way that people approach texts. And so if I were to uh, look at the question of um, lamentations from the perspective of behind the text, I'm asking questions such as what gave rise to this book, uh, what informs this book, uh, in the ancient context, what social, cultural world, what ideologies inform this text. But really, my focus of investigation is the world that lay behind the text that gave rise to the text and to the author and the author's world. That's the world behind the text. And so if I'm looking and interpreting at uh, Lamentations from that horizon, I'm, I'm asking, uh, 
if we could use this language, archaeological kinds of questions. I'm digging under the, the, the soil of the text to get what lay underneath it. And what I would say is there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, I think we would all affirm, uh, or I hope we would, that a text is created in a world that's different than ours, especially an ancient text. And so uh, the kinds of things that, the, that we find in a text like Lamentations, whether it's social codes of mourning and shame uh, or social codes of, of uh, uh, purity and impurity, those things don't quite connect in the same way as they do today. And so they're different than us, and so uh, investigating a book like Lamentations or any text from the perspective of behind the text helps us uh, foreground those, those kinds of issues. The second approach that I talked about is looking at the world within the text. Some might uh, identify this approach as a literary approach. Um, um, you know, there are a number of scholars who have, who have talked about this approach uh, with its affinity to new criticism. Some say it's, it's similar to canonical criticism. I just flatly disagree with that. It's, it's more akin to new criticism where the world of the author and the world of the reader are stripped from your focus on the text. And you just look at the text. I just want to focus on the text. And that sounds so good. But what that does is that strips the text of its mooring to the world in which it comes from or uh, the world from which it comes and the world that receives the text. And so there is no such thing, in my view, as a free-floating text. So that's the problem of the world within the text. But the benefits of looking at a text like Lamentations, or any text for that matter, with a focus on the horizon of the text, is that you're able to really identify some of the structural uh, building blocks of a text. You're able to uh, see uh, parallelism and a lot of the literary qualities that uh, literary studies have, have, have discovered. Uh, and then the world in front of the text is the reading uh, world, so the reader's uh, world. So you're, you mentioned reception history. That's exactly right. Virkungsgeschichte and reception hi history is the way that uh, readers have received texts from their own particular culture, worldview, and ideology. And so it's, it's recognizing the role of the reader in the reception and reading of a text. What I do is I opt for an integrated approach. And what that simply means is I want to give due attention to each horizon while not flattening my reading of Lamentations to any. So I, 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 I do want to take account of uh, the world behind the text, the world of the author, the background, the social context. I want to take account of the, the uh, what we might say, the rough terrain of the literary quality of the text. But I also want to take account that I'm a real reader, living in a time different than the ancient text. And so I have all sorts of biases and cultural um, underpinnings that shape my lenses on how I read this text. And I want to foreground that, not pretend like they don't exist. And so that's what I tried to do in this book. And I think with uh, you know, based on the reviews and things like that, fairly good success. Uh, but that's what I hope uh, that, I, that I try. So one of the things in my integrated approach that I uh, admit from the outset is I'm not reading Lamentations neutrally. I, I state at the outset I'm a Christian. And so uh, this is going to shape how I read this text, and I can't pretend that, it's, that I won't. Uh, so so that's... Uh, that's why I opt for an uh, integrated approach. I think that's an honest and uh, really sensible 
way to approach a text of scripture. Hmm. Yeah, no, that's 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 real helpful and, and help and clarifying on the different types of horizons as as we can approach Lamentations as well as other texts. Sure, because hey, it's this this will this will bleed over into uh, other readings of even even jumping into the New Testament or other sure. Old Testament Old sure. Testament texts. Well, maybe if we can turn a little bit of a of a corner here and, and talk about one of your other works, um, uh, and this is a forthcoming project that was that was really part of the the Scripture and Hermeneutics seminar at SBL. Just has been a tremendous sem- seminar over the past years, and and just want to someone encourage our listeners that if they do go to SBL to try to uh, make it to to one of the sessions in this. Uh, but one of the projects that came out of this that, that you're a part of is a manifesto for theological interpretation. Uh, really, what was the vision behind this project? Why, why do we need a manifesto? There's been a number of works being written on, on theological interpretation uh, from Robert, Robert uh, Moberly, uh, uh, Joel Green, um, Dan Trier, who's a systematician. We have uh, Todd Billings, just a number of helpful books. But it's interesting, one of the, uh, one of the things that noticing is that Theological interpretation is crossing disciplines, so it's not just an Old Testament discipline or hermeneutics or a, a, a theology discipline, uh, but it's it's kind of jumping into multiple different disciplines. So why um, uh, maybe talk a little bit about theological interpretation and, and how this manifesto speaks into that larger conversation? Well, thanks for that question. Uh, the manifesto is uh, ad- addressing the question of what is theological interpretation. I like this. Uh, image, uh, especially today, uh, in light of the diversity of what people call theological interpretation, we could say that uh, theological interpretation can be described as a golem or an unshaped thing that can be shaped into anything that we want. Theological interpretation is a kind of a, a slippery creature that, uh, you know, sometimes it, it basks in the sun, but sometimes it seems to, you know, slink back into the shadows. And what is this thing that we call theological interpretation? You're right to say that uh, TIS, or Theological Interpretation of Scripture, uh, crosses boundaries and disciplines. You have systematicians, dogmaticians, historical theologians, biblical scholars, New Testament people, Old Testament people, uh, d- practicing this thing called theological interpretation. And so it's, it's diverse. It's broad. Uh, it seems as though evangelicals are inherently suspicious of theological interpretation, uh, which I don't think they should be, but I can understand the hesitation. It's weird. It doesn't seem to pay attention to the grammatical historical uh, sense of the text or something like that. So you have all of these kinds of uh, you know challenges to TIS. The manifesto is really there not to give the first word or the last word. So it's not anything super ambitious like that. The manifesto itself is fashioned more like the, the, the Blackwell manifestos. I don't know if you're familiar with that series. But Blackwell manifestos give a distinctive uh, and contributing word to a particular discipline. And that's the design. That's what it's for. And the way that Craig and I have thought about it is... If you are charting your course to theological reading of Scripture, and that's your you're sailing your boat, well, what constellation stars are necessary to help orient you in the right direction? And so each chapter is one of those constellation stars that help guide the ship of interpretation towards one main goal, which is theological interpretation 
is aimed at hearing God's address for today. That's the goal. So we're not after mainly uh, archaeological questions, although that might be part of it. We're not after philosophical or dogmatic questions, although that might be part of it. The big question is, how can Scripture be read in such a way so that we hear God's address for today? That was the major question for the manifesto. And so 12 or 13 chapters uh, were given over to that question. Each chapter explores a different constellation star of, of theological interpretation from the relationship of philosophy to theological interpretation, dogmatics, the history and reemergence of theological interpretation, the question of what is a theological commentary, to the, the big ones. And I wrote this chapter, which is the goal of theological interpretation. And some people uh, tend to think theological interpretation has to do with doctrinal formulation. So we read in order to produce doctrine uh, in a kind of systematic historical, uh, systematic or, um, you know, uh, doctrinal manner. In other words, the logical ordering of doctrines. And that's, that's fine. I don't think so, though. Uh, so one of the things that we uh, did is we, we made sure that doctrine has its place, biblical theology has its place, History has its place. Philosophy has its place. But they all can be arranged in different ways depending on your, um, your place in the Christian tradition. So if you're a Lutheran, for instance, you'll be, have much more affinity to a law gospel formulation. If you're a Calvinist, a uh, traditional Calvinist, then you'll probably have much more affinity with a covenantal schema. If you're, uh, a, you know, there are plenty of theological interpreters in the Catholic tradition, okay? They'll have... They'll orient their theological interpretation with Scripture and tradition in a way that probably more Reformed people wouldn't feel comfortable with, and evangelicals probably wouldn't feel comfortable with. So each of these constellation points can be oriented in different ways, but they're all there in, in, in uh, the way that we read. And so that's the purpose of, of the manifesto. That's what we do. And the, the desire is to chart a course for the future, for the next generation. Because, you know, I, I teach students day in and day out, and one of the things they ask a lot is, well, how do I, how do I read theologically? And, well, uh, that's a good question, you know. It's not something that you already probably don't do. You probably do, and you've probably been hearing it all your life in the homilies and the, the sermons in the church in Bible studies, in private reading and devotion. You're probably doing theological interpretation, you just don't know it. But especially in the light of um, the academic shifts uh, since, oh, I guess, the past 250 years or so, uh, it's been necessary to talk about this theologically, and uh, especially since the work of Karl Barth, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, post-World War II, German theologians especially, what you find is it's gained a prominence in the, in the academy in, in ways that it hadn't before. So the manifesto is, is trying to continue that discussion, crystallize it in a particular direction, and give uh, a way forward for the next generation of scholars. Well, that's very helpful. Thanks for the reflection there on TIS, and I think a lot of our listeners would be interested in exploring that more uh so we'll provide some resources uh, on the website great along with this podcast 
but we'd love to explore uh, both your personal discipline a little bit more, get some perspective from you, and then also your role as an educator and administrator. I think a lot of our listeners would, would love to hear that perspective as well. So just a question for you. How do you perceive the study of the early church, the patristic writings, their hermeneutics, and overall era uh, of church history, aiding you in your study of the Old Testament and hermeneutics as well? Well, that's a great question. You know, one of the things I do at Southeastern, we, we have an MA in Old Testament. And one of the core classes that all MA Old Testament students have to take is a year-long history of interpretation of the Old Testament. And so they read from the Old Testament interpretation of the Old Testament all the way to uh, the Old Testament interpreted in the modern period in the 21st century. And, of course, we cover in that first semester uh, Second Temple Judaism and uh, early church interpretation, including New Testament, obviously, but also the Apostolic Fathers and the early church fathers, etc. So what we find, I think, with early Christian interpretation uh, is it's, it seems to be a bit of an amalgam, but one of the things that you find central is, and I like the way that one, one uh, 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 set of scholars says it, they, that the early church interpreters of Scripture, and uh, you know, as you know, I'm sure, the earliest Bible of the church was the Old Testament. So how do they read this Old Testament document as Christian scripture? Well, uh, some scholars tell us, and I like this imagery, is they have sanctified vision. They have sanctified imaginations. They've been captured by this, uh, the reality of the Christ. And it, it radically shifts how they see the Old Testament. So no longer is the Old Testament just speaking of Yahweh. They begin to see uh, Yahweh as Christ. And you see this reflected in, in uh, early Christian writings, particularly in the New Testament. For instance, in Acts 2, uh, when, when Peter gives his Pentecost sermon, uh, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, when, when Peter is, is quoting the book of Joel there, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The Lord there in the Old Testament is Yahweh. But who does Peter mean there in, in the book of Acts? He means Christ. Well, how is that possible? Well, the reality of Jesus. Jesus is God, captured his imagination. And so what I see, at least in early Christian interpretation of the Old Testament, because that's really where I I focus my uh, study, I see there's not a kind of uh, paint-by-numbers way of reading the Old Testament as Christian scripture. These people are captured by the reality of God in Christ, and it radically reorients how they see the, the Old Testament Scripture. Now, what that means is, it's not that they change the Old Testament Scriptures, per se. What they do is they understand the, the, the vast reality of Jesus. He's always been there in the Old Testament. He wasn't hiding behind the, the burning bush, or he wasn't, you know, from my perspective, uh, as I see it, he wasn't, you know, hiding in the fiery furnace. No, he's always been there since the beginning. So in the beginning, God created the heavens, the earth. The, the triune God is there. Christ is there. That's why Paul can make his affirmations in Colossians. That's why John can make his affirmation of, of the Logos, the Word, in John 1. And so it's this radical 
uh, reading of, of the Old Testament, but uh, that obviously other Jewish sects did not agree with, because uh, you have this parting of ways, um, especially after the destruction of the, of the temple in 70. But it's, it's the, the reality of Jesus. And I, I think one of the people that captures this uh, beautifully, in my view, is a guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who centuries later, obviously, he's writing to this guy, uh, his brother-in-law, Rudiger, Schles uh, Rudiger uh, Schlesinger, I think is his last name. And one of the things he says is, listen, uh, Jesus is the center and strength of the Bible. And it, it, notice what Bonhoeffer says there. He doesn't say Jesus is in the Bible, right? Or the Bible is somehow about Jesus. It's the center. Jesus is the center and strength of Scripture. He even goes on to say everything must return to Christ in Scripture, not in some sort of ham-fisted way, but uh, it, the reality of Jesus. Jesus is central in all of it because Jesus is vast. He is God. And so that's what's, I, I, I think, been impressed on me uh, when I read early Christian writings, uh, particularly of the Old Testament. And one of the people that got me on this, this vein, strangely enough, is Irenaeus, his demonstration of the apostolic preaching. He rereads the Old Testament through the lens of Christ. And I kept thinking, gosh, how does he do this? How in the world does he do this? Uh, but the reality is, he sees something that was always there but was hidden unless you had the eyes to see it. Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God, who is God, present in the Old Testament always, present now, and will be present forever because he's God. Yeah, that's beautiful, and I uh, appreciate that perspective. And it's helpful for us to think about uh, as scholars that, uh, again, um, Fields should intersect, especially in early Christianity and uh, the studies of hermeneutics, Second Temple of Judaism, and, and the perspective of um, the divine eyes or sanctified vision, as Reno and Keith uh, describe, is very helpful when approaching the early church. So I appreciate that, Heath. And I'd love to ask you a question just about your role there at Southeastern and, and really just think about... Uh, educational philosophy, the future of education, and as your leadership role over the uh, doctorate, uh, doctoral studies there at Southeastern. We'd love to know just a bit about your educational philosophy, and then also, what do you believe, um, let me rephrase that question, why do you believe in education, and what is its role in the life of the person? Could you speak to that? Sure, and I, I you know, I love that question. Uh, education is is uh, sometimes gets a, a a a bad name, I think, in evangelical life. Unfortunately, not totally, but sometimes, and I think that's changing with institutions uh, like Southern, like Southeastern, uh, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, uh, Gordon Conwell. A lot of these schools have really changed uh, the calculus on that. I think to where education is valued, but historically, what's interesting is education has always been central in the life of the people of God. So it's not uh, an option, it's an imperative. Uh, for instance, I was just working with my, my sons this morning through the book of Proverbs. And what is Proverbs, if not instruction? We are supposed to be people of the book, from the Old Testament people of God, Israel, to the, uh, the, the people of God in the New Testament, the church. We are to be a people of the book. 
a people who are trained and instructed in righteousness, so that, according to Paul's instruction to Timothy, that the man of God may be fully equipped for every good work. We are to be people who are always learning. Okay, so education is not an option. It's an imperative from my perspective. But what is the goal of education? And that's where, as the director of Ph.D. studies, it's my uh, extreme delight and privilege at Southeastern to encourage our students to think the goal of education is the excellence of Christ, the central role of Christ in all things. So education is not for your own sake. It's for the honor and the glory of the Christ, the Messiah. And the foundation, uh, if, in fact, this is the one of the first, this is the first lecture that I give in our first seminar at Southeastern to our students, is I take the, the uh, Christ hymn in Colossians 1, 15 through 20, and I focus our students on what is their goal in Ph.D. work. Well, it should be excellence in all things for the honor and for the glory of Christ, because he's, he is uh, the center of all things. So Christ has to be central. Christ has to be central, because, man, God has reconciled all things to Christ, including the academic life, including education, including uh, parenting, including our writing, including our publishing, including this podcast. Christ has to be central in all things. And so excellence means, quite simply, setting Christ and the central role of Christ in all things on display in our scholarship and in our education. And what does that mean in practice? Education can't be self-centered. It has to be Christ-centered. Education can't be so that I show that I'm the smartest person in the room. It has to set Christ on display, whether in your diligence, whether in your fairness to representing views different than yours or those uh, views with, with which you disagree. You have to be fair and just and right because that sets Christ on display. That honors Christ in the way that we do our work. So that is central to the way uh, I hopefully lead our Ph.D. students and based on the feedback that I've gotten, uh, most students haven't really thought about that. They just think, well, I'm going to go do my Ph.D. so I can go teach. And my, my big question is, to what end? Education has to have an end. It has to have a goal. And surely the greatest goal is to set Christ and his glory on display. And so that's, that's my educational philosophy. And the way that we do that, and the way I encourage folks to do that, is you do this work with all the rigor and with all the effort and with all the stamina and with all the courage that you can muster because Christ is worth it. So shoddy work is dishonoring to the, our Messiah. Shoddy work in misrepresenting others or caricaturing others, even those uh, with whom we disagree, is, is poor, poor work and not honoring to Christ. Being provincial or parochial in our scholarship is not honoring to Christ because Christ is king of this world. And so we need to engage the whole world, engage global scholarship uh, at the highest level. So that, that's the kind of thing that, that I try and instill at our, uh, to our students at Southeastern. And I, I really do think um, they seem to be catching on. Uh, I, I think the, the, that our students are producing excellent, excellent work, and I, I'm really pleased to see the direction where we're headed. Well, that's brilliant. Yeah, and I had the recent pleasure of interacting with some uh, Southeastern PH students in the area of ethics, and they were very passionate 
So uh, I definitely attribute that to um, the scholarship and the uh, ed educational philosophy there. So I uh, just want to commend you for that. Uh, last question for me, and then we'll, we'll start wrapping this up, but you know, kind of going back to both uh, your discipline and some of the things that you've been doing with interacting uh, within the field of TIS, uh, just from your perspective, what do you perceive as perhaps necessary book projects or dissertation topics that you'd like to see, maybe writing topics, other things of that nature? Uh, that some who might be listening, who are interested in this field, that might consider taking on in order to contribute to this field. Um, perhaps what areas of ancient Christian studies do you perceive as needing further development and attention from your perspective? Well, I love that question, especially the last one. Uh, what areas of ancient Christian studies do I perceive as needing further development? Well, I think um, one of the things that I would say, and of course I'm speaking now from an Old Testament, uh, you know, professor perspective, but there seems to be an extraordinary lack of attention in the Old Testament, how the Old Testament is itself uh, read and understood, and then how it's received. Uh, it, it seems as though there needs to be a fresh rehearing of the Old Testament uh, and how that organizes or orients questions in early Christian studies. And, uh, you know, again, it's Irenaeus who got me on this, this track. And then uh, the other guy that I was looking at is Eusebius's, uh, I think it was Proof of the Gospel, uh, the way that he reads Promise and Fulfillment as Proof of the Gospel. Well, that Promise Fulfillment category, where did that come from? I mean, is that just an early Christian? Is that Greco-Roman? Is that Second Temple Jewish? Or is there something more fundamental to that? Where does Eusebius get this? Is it, did he get it from the early church? Well, where does the early church get it? Okay, is that, when we're talking about the early church, we're, we're talking about an intra-Jewish uh, context. Okay? And so, I think, from my perspective, there needs to be fresh reattention on... Uh, the Old Testament, both in Septuagintal uh, reception of Old Testament texts, um, or, or uh, you know, Old Greek reception of, of uh, ancient, probably Hebrew texts of the Old Testament, and then how that's filtered through into the worldview of, of Second, you know, Temple Jewish apocalypticism and wisdom, etc., uh, and then how that that's received in the, the church. I think there needs to be a lot of work done on that. I'm excited about one of the things that we're doing in uh, Scripture and Hermeneutics this year. Uh, we're having an entire Scripture and Hermeneutics session devoted to Old Testament and worldview. Uh, what is the worldview that the Old Testament itself projects in the different kinds of literature that we have? But uh, well, one of your writers that's written in your uh, work, Fides uh, Humilitas, I think is the name of your journal, is that right? He, uh, Matt Emerson is doing a, uh, a, a paper on something along the lines of uh, Old Testament, Second Temple Apocalypticism, and New Testament. So I, that's the kind of stuff that I think is really exciting and, and needs to be exploited. So that's uh, what, what we're doing as Scripture and Hermeneutics to begin to tackle these kinds of questions. But I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done. In, in this field. Uh, I, I also think in light of the, the huge interest in Septuagintal study, 
there needs to be more work on Septuagint and its relationship to early Christian, uh, early Christian uh, identity, scripture formation, etc. Yeah, no, that's that's great, and I and I hope some take up those some of those tasks that you that you lay forth. And uh, if if we can, let, let's just ask one more question to kind of wrap up our time. And we've been thrilled that you've been able to join us thus far. Uh, but but really, based upon your experience, and and, I, and I'm sure you you get um, opportunities to have have this type of question asked. But let, let's just envision you have a, either a, a woman before you or a, a young man before you, wanting to be a scholar, wanting it, kind of working through the upcoming ranks, um, uh, things that they're interested in or moving towards more of at the academy. Um, if you just had two minutes. They have an open ear to you, and you had, and and they offered you two minutes. What would be the type of wisdom that you would offer them? Well, I, I would orient it around some C's. You know, I grew up in a pastor's home, so everything is alliterated in my life. But the first C is, I would say, church. If you want to be a scholar in the academy, whether you're a man or a woman, it makes no difference. You have got to be deeply rooted to the church. It's the bride of Christ. It's the way. It's the place where we worship and uh, gather to practice uh, Eucharist and baptism and praise and confession and prayer and just celebrate life together as we worship the Lord Christ. So that's one thing is you, you've got to be deeply embedded in the church. Second part of that would be be the church. Just because you're a scholar doesn't mean that you're a second-class citizen in the kingdom of God. You are an active member in the church. You're gathered for worship right? That's the institutional church, but you're scattered for witness. And part of your witness is to do good work for the glory of God in the academy. So I'd encourage them to think through that. What would that look like for your life? The second C that I would say besides church is character. Uh, it's easy, easy, easy to get selfish, uh, egoistic. I mean, the, uh, the academy is awash with ego. And sadly, that's both within and outside the church. Uh, I, I don't think that's honoring to Christ. So you've got to develop character. And I think uh, the way that one develops character is not only participation in the church, but an active prayer, uh, prayer life with reflection, an active uh, prayer life with listening, uh, something akin to the ancient practice of Lectio Divina, if, if you know what that is. I think that's a good habit to develop character within us, spiritual formation. That's huge in the life of of uh, the scholar. The third C that I would say is commitment. You've got to commit yourself to the task. Uh, scholarship is no easy feat. It is really, really hard work. And I remember very clearly in my PhD, there were a couple of times where I cried myself to sleep. My wife was going, what is wrong with you? And I said, I just don't think I can do this. It's too much. But I promise you this, every time that we pray and ask God to increase our ability, increase our uh, mental capacities, God answers that prayer. So you've got to commit to the process, and it is a process. It's not a one-off thing, and it's not a microwave quick uh, thing where you just become this world-class scholar. You have to commit to the process, and that's years in the making. So don't rush it. Take your time. Do it right. And if it takes seven years, it takes seven years, but at least you've come out on the other side a more deeply formed uh, person who's ready to go into the fields of the Lord and do the work that he's called us to. Yeah, no, that's that's rich, and that's just a great word 
to close with, and and we've been encouraged by. It. I hope I hope our, our listeners are encouraged by it as well. But Dr. Uh, Thomas, we just want to thank you for giving us a few moments of your thank time you. and just thank the wisdom you. that you're able to provide for us. So it's been great. Thank you very much for the invitation. Thank you. Take care. All right.